He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, June 12, 2021. Spectacular show this week from Israel, where the reign of Bibi Netanyahu may be about to end. Ken Toltz, Colorado Democrat stalwart, who recently moved to Israel. On with him, not just me, but former state rep and GOP gubernatorial candidate, Victor Mitchell. Wait till you hear what he has to say about Israel and Ken Toltz and Donald Trump and Bibi and our fragile democracy. That spectacular conversation coming up shortly, followed by a great session of Craig's Lawyers Lounge. Mark Harris is a board member with Colorado Ceasefire. He's got strong opinions, and this is a high-level discussion and legal analysis of the situation. Wait till you hear Mark Harris. Our troubadour delivers, as always, with a song called Earth. And I try to bring you the reality of Denver Trump radio. It was a historic week. The sad end of Peter Boyles. He surrendered. He capitulated to Randy Corcoran and the forces backing Trump's big lie. We've got the sound. Don't miss it. Here we go. I have been looking forward to this for quite a while. Getting a three-way call with two old friends of mine, Victor Mitchell, you know him from his run for governor, came up just short in the Republican primary, And then there's Kenny Toltz, who once ran against Tom Tancredo, put up a good fight. He's been involved in gun issues. He speaks to us live from Israel, and we all three know each other. Welcome, you fellows. A pleasure to be with you. I'm in uh, Herzliya, Israel. It is uh, 6.30 p.m. right before Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom, Victor Mitchell. What about you? Are you comfy watching tennis? You nonstop <laughs> you, French Open fan? I am a nonstop, diehard, uh, die-in-the-wool tennis fan. Great to talk with you, Craig, and um, enjoying the great weather here in Denver. All right, let's talk about how we all know each other. I've known Kenny Told since he was part of my little sister's class at GW and probably at Hebrew school before that. I call him Kenny. Is that okay? Because you are eternally younger than me. (laughs) That's right. Let's not forget that. I was class of 75 at George Washington. Correct. That's 1975. And Victor Mitchell, I sometimes call you Victor, sometimes Vic. What do you prefer? It doesn't matter. I actually, every bit's interchangeable. Everybody calls me by either. And 
not particular on either one. But first, it's great to be on your show again. Fred. First time I ever met you, I introduced you as Victor Mitchell, and you immediately began attacking lawyers, and I liked <laughs> you from the start. You've got a memory like an elephant, Craig. Well, that was a memorable <laughs> GOP gubernatorial debate that I got to moderate at Pinehurst, and Doug Robinson got his nose bloodied by uh, another candidate. It was really something. And uh, how did you two guys know each other? Through tennis or what? Yes, it was very <laughs> fortuitous. We met, Ken was literally one of the very first people I met when I moved to Colorado in early 1996, and we were instant friends. And, uh, you know, we just, it, it, we knew each other through family. We knew each other through our nephew, or my son and his nephew played tennis. Um, and we would play tennis together, but we formed a lasting friendship over the better part of 25 years. I still to this day, I wish we, I could see Ken more often. That's an well, unlikely, I just, I just yeah, want to it, add. It just just let me, in this day and age where nobody gets long anymore, when you guys were good friends, Victor Mitchell was a prominent Republican and Ken Tolt's prominent Democrat. Ken, give us this story from your perspective. Well, we actually met on the tennis court uh, at a tournament. <laughs> uh, Vic and I played each other. We had a great match. He's very competitive. I came out on the winning end of that match, if I remember correctly. But he was such an enjoyable person to compete with that we formed a friendship way before we knew each other's politics. And we knew each other for years and years. And uh, I, I don't think I really even knew that Vic was a Republican. I knew he was a business person, an entrepreneur, uh, a great father, a great husband, beloved Colorado. And... Uh, and then I, I believe I might be one of the first and only Democrats that he supported when I ran for office back in the 2000 election cycle. Am I right about that, Dick? Oh, definitely. Coming with against Tom Tancredo, absolutely, and our friendship. Uh, I, I'm, I believe in anything above all else that you have to be of good character to run and serve in public office. So. Uh, absolutely can. And I just enjoyed spending time with you. We had so many fun matches. I don't remember you coming out on top. It's possible. I think I, I think I got my revenge at a later time. <laughs> and I, I also want to add that I really uh, had the pleasure of attending when Vic was running for governor, not that too long ago, uh, events where he spoke uh, and uh, really appreciated hearing his perspective and the way the audience responded to him. He was a very good candidate, uh, and it's uh, this Colorado Republican Party's loss that they couldn't get behind him soon enough. They say that sports reveals character. A lot of people say play 18 holes of golf with somebody you will learn a lot. I've played a fair amount of tennis, but I'm not a tennis nut like you guys. Can you judge somebody's character when you play against them? And what about line calls? At the French Open, they do it the old-fashioned way. What's your attitude about line calls, and what do you recall in this disputed match about who was making good line calls or not? <laughs> I don't. I don't ever. I. I. I ask, the answer is absolutely. You can absolutely tell somebody's character when you play uh, tennis because tennis is such a unique sport that um, there's so many things against you. You can play great, but your opponent can play just one shot better. 
Uh, there's the weather issues, and it really is a it's really a testament to uh, perseverance and uh, resourcefulness and athleticism. Uh, but you can absolutely tell people's character when they hook you on line calls. All of a sudden, the <laughs> lines are no. All of a sudden, the lines magically are out. Um, but, but no, I don't think Ken and I ever had a line call dispute. At least I can't recall one. Maybe he has a, a different recollection. Uh, but it was just—it's just a great sport. It's a great sport of learning about yourself and dealing with emotions and um, stress on the court, anxieties, playing big in the big moments. I mean, it's just a such a unique sport because you, every every game you only really need to win four points, so you're constantly under stress. Uh, you don't, no matter how, you can't really separate yourself with a big margin in tennis. Right. Well, I, I want to just I want to tell you one thing about Victor Mitchell is not only is he a great competitor, he's a great father. And he started hitting with his son at a very young age uh, and was committed to helping his son learn tennis, who became a tremendous competitor, uh, won a no, numerous junior tournaments, became a nationally ranked junior tennis player, played college tennis for the U.S. Army. And I'm sure it could go on and tell you more about his accomplishments. But, you know, that's just really when you talk about a testament to character and uh, when you dedicate your time to your child's development at a very young age, uh, day after day, week after week, year after year, that's a real testament to character. And, and when I think about politics or tennis, uh, I, I want somebody who uh, has demonstrated by the way they act their true character. And I have, you know, it was a pleasure to get to know Vic and to see him emerge in politics. He, and he served in the state legislature as well. I, I, I know you remember that, Craig. I do. But along the way, and even when I had him on that debate stage, I had no idea that he was a member of our tribe. Did you know that, <laughs> Ken Toltz? Did you know when you played tennis against him that you were either defeating or losing to a Jewish fellow? I did not. We didn't play uh, at the at the JCC that tournament. Uh, if I remember, we played out uh, out south. And um, I've been fascinated by Victor's, you know, exploring his Jewish family roots, uh, visiting Israel. Uh, you know, it's it, it's something that you and I, Craig, didn't really grow up with. We grew up with people who had you know, multi-generations in the Jewish community, and in a way, we took it for granted. And I think one of the really unique and beautiful things about Victor is that he doesn't take uh, his Judaism for granted. Let's let Victor explain himself. Uh, did you always know you were Jewish, Victor? And when did you start talking about it? I always knew I was Jewish, but I was a Jewish denier. I always denied my Judaism and kind of hid it. And... Um, was never raised uh, with any, you know, formal religion, but both my parents are Jewish. And um, the turning point for me was when I discovered my grandmother was the sole survivor. Her entire family was lost in the Holocaust. She came through Ellis Island in 1917 as a 17-year-old. And then I later discovered, uh, long after she passed, that, um, you know, everyone was lost. We lost literally dozens of people on her side of the family. All her, she had a large family. And um, that kind of changed something in me. And then I, for my Judaism, I went to Israel. I met this incredible rabbi, <laughs> Rabbi Shmiel, and uh, just a fortuitous, you know, experience. I was at the Western Wall and 
kind of came over to me and we started talking. He said, Hey, you ever been bar mitzvah? And I said, no. And we did a bar mitzvah right on the spot and we've become friends ever since. So, um, yeah, my Judaism, I, I certainly don't deny it anymore and I embrace it now. And I'm kind of ashamed of the fact it took me so long to get there, but we all have our spiritual journeys. Uh, people have different stories that kind of, as I said, the turning point for me is my grandmother, who I didn't know as well as I should have. And she died when I was relatively young, but I just have so much respect for her courageousness and the perseverance of having to learn at, you know, to, at, after she had already acclimated into it, become a U.S. citizen and her whole family were murdered in, in around 1942. So that was a big turning point in my life. Wow. First of all, Kenny and I are jealous because we had to spend a year going to the canner's office, the rabbi's office. There was a lot of preparation for our bar mitzvah. We missed a lot of sports. But back to the serious stuff about your grandma, when did you come to this realization? How old were you? Oh, no, recently. Um, since um, just in the last three years when we did a genealogy report. You have a beautiful family. How did you explain this to them, your children? I, I was straight away with them. And, uh, you know, they, they're so far removed from them. I don't think they had, it had the impact that it had on me uh, to think that, you know, it's just really a miracle of faith, <laughs> faith that I um, I'm even exist. Because had my grandmother stayed on, I mean, don't forget, 1917, for your listeners, was a very crucial year in world history. I mean, it was the height of the Bolshevik Revolution. We're in the middle of World War One. Um, you know, we had Lenin was coming to power. I mean, it was a very, very tumultuous time in world history. Here's this, you know, rambunctious 17-year-old girl, eldest of five children, and she decides that she's going to get purchase a one-way ticket uh, through Rotterdam into America, onto America. And you think about that. I mean, she didn't know anybody. She didn't speak the local tongue. She didn't have a nickel to her name. And she was able to do that at such a young age. And that was kind of a faithful decision she made. It saved her life and created a multi-generation of our family. Wow. And she was about to face something called a pandemic. Anyway, um, what was her name? Her name was Sarah Vond, V-A-N-D. And she came from Volkovic which is now, which at that time was Polish, Poland, Russia, but today it's, uh, it's today it's Belarus, but you know, we're, as I think you guys are as well, we're Ashkenazi Jews. Right. The Pale of Settlement, where for, you know, for a while there, they let Jews live and not bother them very much. And, and we know how that ended. And your story is so remarkable, Victor, and we talk all at the time about politics and I don't want to speak out of school, but you called me one day and you usually have something clever to say. And I think you said, I'm moving to Israel. I'm joining Kenny Toltz. <laughs> That's my dream. Yes, I hope to be there in uh, maybe another year or two after my eldest graduates high school next year. But it's definitely a part on my bucket list. I want to become an Israeli citizen, dual citizenship and a do a lot and um and learn the language, and possibly, uh, hopefully, purchase a home uh, in Herzliya. Wow! Let's wow. To, let's hey. talk to somebody who knows all about that. What's <laughs> what's your reaction, Kenny Toltz? Uh, I'm thrilled. 
I'm, I'll start looking for uh, properties right away. <laughs> <laughs> with a tennis court, with extra big lines, right. With a tennis court. So a quick, quick, uh, quick story. Across the street from me, I live in the Patuach neighborhood of Herzliya, which is next to the Mediterranean. And all of a sudden, security uh, cropped up at the house across the street. And 24-7, there's security guys, big black SUVs. And uh, I was curious, uh, you know, who, who was living there. And next thing I know, they put a sign up on the uh, gate. And I walked over, and the sign says, it's in Arabic. It's in Arabic. It says he's the ambassador from the United Arab yes. Emirates. Emirates. Yes. Emirates. I've been listening about that uh, conference. Uh, they had a big confab over in an Arab country, and uh, I, I think people are really getting along so much they're moving into your neighborhood. How do you feel about that? It was amazing. I I, I just really couldn't believe that uh, an ambassador from an Arab country was living across the street from me in Israel, and I and I actually met him. Uh, he was coming out of the house, and I was I was just walking by, and he was very friendly, uh, very nice, very warm. Uh, I invited him for coffee sometime. I told him I live right across the street, and uh, I was amazed by how young he was, Craig. Uh, he's just turned 40. Was he educated and, you know, in America? Us guys, that's young, right? Yeah. Is he, is he American he educated? Have... I think he had some American education. Uh, he's not part of the Emirates uh, ruling family. He's a professional diplomat. All right, let's talk about Eretz Yisrael. You guys have been in the news. I need somebody to explain it to me. Tell me if I've got it straight. There's an eight-party coalition from the right to the left to Arab parties, and their one mission is to get Bibi out of power. And Bibi has been resistant, but it looks like the deal is going to go down on Sunday. Do I have that part right, Ken Toltz? You do have it right, Craig. Uh, and it's historic. Uh, but don't forget, there were four elections in two years that led us to this point. So uh, it was not easy to form a coalition that had a majority in, that, in this case, 61 seats in the Israeli par parliament, which is called Knesset. And they had to work very hard over uh, the last month in the middle of the Gaza, you know, conflict with Gaza as well, to reach out, as, as you said, uh, right-wing parties, left-wing parties, center parties, and for the first time ever to include a party uh, from the Arab community, which is 2 million strong, by the way, in Israel. Uh, and uh, that coalition is formed. The agreements have been signed, and the uh, vote of confidence will take place on Sunday in the Knesset, and uh, then it's bye-bye, Bibi. Yeah, but I don't believe it until he's gone, just like you know who. But let's go to the guy who actually served in a legislature, Victor Mitchell. You also are a deal-maker. Will this deal hold? God, I'm not by no means a, I'm by no means an expert in the Israeli parliamentary system. It certainly appears so from the way the media has reported it. But uh, we should all be concerned, and it's really a testament that so much more work has to be done to 
um, refresh our democratic systems, whether you have a parliamentary system or, uh, you know, a three, uh, three parties, a three, you know, legislative, judicial and um, executive branch of government like we have in this country, a presidential system. But it really tells you that, you know, their structural reforms are needed and you have to really invest heavily in our democratic institutions. It's kind of scary that, you know, Netanyahu has signaled that he might not attend the uh, transfer of power uh, and that he's doing everything in his power, calling it a fraudulent election, fraudulent alliance, coalition, whatever terminology they might use. So um, it, it does rings of our former president, kind of this kind of nastiness, cheating, dishonesty. Um, so these are things that we all should think about. I, I know you and I have talked offline. I mean, I think the U.S. is desperately in need of a four-party system, um, not a two, not a three-party system, because we all know that independence, really independence in name only, I like to call them INOs, uh, because basically they call themselves independents, but they generally always vote either Republican or Democrat. Right. However, if we had a center-right and center-left um, four-party system in the U.S., it could truly uh, transform our democracy, where we have much more of um, mainstream people who are serving in office. Right now, with the gerrymandering and the two-party system, you basically have a race to the bottom of the most extremists on both sides, uh, winning primaries, which are effectively an easy path through the general election. So, But it really, what's happening in Israel is a testament of what's happening here as well. We have to more invest heavily in in um, restructuring our democracy so we can invest in and and make sure it's sustainable over the long run. Totally agree. And we will get to that because democracies are fragile, especially when you have a leader like Netanyahu. I used to like the guy so much. I was there when he gave that speech against the Iran nuke deal. I was in the room where it happened, and I thought it was the greatest speech I'd ever heard, an important speech in Jewish history. But I've seen the association of Bibi with Donald Trump. I heard the calls that it's all a fraud, it's rigged. And now he's got right-wing guys, Kenny told, saying to Naftali Bennett, uh, his former friend who's going to replace him, that he should take off the kippah. He's not really a religious Jew. So it's really getting ugly over there, even though they have way more than two parties. Yeah, it has, Craig, and it's really disheartening uh, because we have enough problems over here that we don't need uh, the Jewish community fighting with each other in these very nasty, threatening ways. Uh, so I think there is actually optimism that after the Sunday vote and the new government uh, is sworn in and uh, the Likud party is already looking for a new leader, so possibly Bibi get, doesn't even uh, maintain his his lead of that you know Likud party. Uh, that the healing will begin, be, uh, and that the, the in the agreements that all these parties have uh, signed to join the coalition, they they have said that they are willing to put aside the specific uh, agenda of their party and work on the uh, areas that are in uh, conjunction with the healing of the country and the big issues. We'll we'll see if if that. You know, comes through, but that the intention is stated that way. So uh, even though some people come ideologically from one position or another, uh, the uh, 
uh, events that surrounding the Gaza war where there was actual riots, you know, in towns within Israel right. between Jews and Arabs really got everybody's attention to the division has become so significant and dangerous that we can't let it continue this way. We have to work to heal it. All right. That's where Israel needs to be better than America, because we had some riots on our street, unrest after George Floyd. And we thought people would come together and we thought the GOP would break free of Donald Trump after he lost the election and blew it for them in Georgia. But he's still got an iron grip on them. And I'm worried Bibi will have a lot of power and he'll do the same thing. There seems to be a cult of personality going on with the GOP. I've never been a Republican. We're going to have to ask Victor about that. But please tell me, Kent Tolts first, are Jews susceptible to a cult of Bibi? Are there people like that over there? And are there enough of them to make a difference? Uh, well, sadly, yes, there are uh, a, a number. They call them Bibiists. And uh, uh, I've seen them up close and personal. You know, they uh, uh, scream at the anybody who's protesting uh, in Hebrew. They say rock Bibi, which means only Bibi. Uh, and they are true believers that with that he's the indispensable man to convince everybody here in Israel that without Bibi in, in charge, Israel is has an, you know, faces an existential crisis. Uh, that's why the change of government uh, is so critical that to just to so the, the sun will come up the next day and everything will remain the same. Uh, and the uh, situation from security is not going to change overnight. Um, I, I do my sense and you guys can speak to this better than I is that uh, the Republican Party, you know, through the primary process has put people in place or so off to one side that the mainstream of the Republican Party is not really represented anymore. And that, that's not the case in Israel because of the parliamentary system. Well, that's a perfect entree to you, Victor. I know you think about this a lot. What happened to your former party, the Republicans, and what can be done to fix it? I mean, there's nothing. It's a disgrace and it's heartbreaking and there's no other way to describe it. I mean, it shows uh, I, I personally won't ever vote the rest of my life again for anyone that supported or in any way enabled Trump to do what he's done. I mean, he's a totally corrupt individual uh, at, at his, and he's rotten to the core. And it's shameful, nothing less than shameful, that the Republicans are willing to sell their souls for a monster. And what's exactly what he is. Um, so it's absolutely, you know, you, I've been a Republican since I was 18 years old and got to see Ronald Reagan speak. I was 18 years old. I was entirely inspired. I mean, Ronald Reagan and, and, uh, W, uh, you know, Bush 41. I mean, they must be rolling over in their graves right now. They have to be. I mean, this is not Eisenhower's Republican party. This is not, uh, Bush, the Bush family, or obviously Reagan or any of the great Republicans through the years. I mean, the, He's nothing, never was a Republican. And to watch all the, this cult-like figure come to power and then continue to have a stranglehold on the party should make everybody concerned. Um, the ultimate solution, and it's not an easy one, is you have to, the, the core issue to American democracy is restructuring the uh, gerrymandering, the redistricting system. The fact that 
there's so if you look at the 435 members in the Congress today, uh, there's fewer than 40, more like 20 uh, out of 435 that are truly contested swing districts. That's scary. That means that all you've got to do is win a primary in more than 90 percent of the congressional districts in the U.S. and you're guaranteed. So that's a we've now it's now been proven that under that situ under that structure, you're going to have you know people that are willing to overturn elections, uh, swear to uphold the Constitution, and then not uphold the Constitution, engage in lawless uh, you know support of insurrectionists and the like. It, 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 we have to fix our, our system of districting. Every single district in this country must be competitive. There has to be truly equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats and independents that lean Republican and independents that lean Democrat. And it has to be done really almost like a jury pool of highly competent, uh, ordinary citizens that are not partisans uh, that draw these districts up. It's got to be taken away from the courts. It's got to be taken away from the legislature. It's got to be taken away from the governorships. Um, and that's really the best hope we have for democracy, in, ad in addition to ultimately exploring a four-party system, compulsory voting, ranked choice uh, voting in uh, heavily Republican and Democrat states where they really don't have a say in our electoral process. So th those types of structural changes are needed um, in order to break Trump's grip on the party and really save our democracy. Kenny, you ran in a very conservative district against Tom Tancredo. What year was that? It was the 2000 election cycle, Craig. So what do you think of Victor's idea? As I understand it, you take Colorado, we're going to have an extra district. What is it going to be? Eight now? And uh, so you take Colorado, you figure out how to uh, roughly balance Republicans, Democrats, independents. You try to splice it up geographically or not at all, Victor, would you keep any geographic integrity? Geographics is, is less important. Obviously, you should attempt to have geographic integrity. That's much easier from a logistics standpoint. But the most critical point is you have equal numbers of all affiliated voters. Um, so it's truly a competitive general election in every scenario. Right. You want to, and it's, it's not practical to have. Uh -huh. There's probably not enough Republicans in Colorado, for example, to make that possible because the Democrats right. have a significant advantage today. But still, you could probably make six, maybe even seven of the districts hyper competitive. And you should the goal should be is to have as many districts as truly equal as possible. Again, and you also have to look at the a four party system. Uh, there is lots of people like myself that have left the Republican Party. And there's a lot of moderate Democrats that don't align, that are pro-life Democrats, especially a good amount of Catholic Democrats uh, that would love a more of a moderate uh, center-left uh, Democratic Party. Uh, so I think that there is a real opportunity there. The fact that these two parties have had a, kept a stranglehold on our democracy is also something that looks at why is more than a third of all eligible voters don't participate in the process I think it's largely because of the fact that they have two parties that they don't agree with. I, I think you're making great points. Oh, what about ranked choice voting? I know you've been big on that as well. I mean, ranked choice voting is a very effective way to work um, if you cannot get a majority. In my case, when I ran for the in the primary and I lost, there were 13 candidates, ultimately four made it onto the ballot. 
I would have had a much better chance had there been ranked choice voting where you have to ultimately get a majority of the votes and the the you basically rank your preferences, you know, in order and the lowest person falls off and effectively you have a recalculation of the votes until somebody ultimately achieves a majority. Uh, that's very helpful in districts that are heavily Republican or heavily Democrat and states as well. Uh, states like uh, California and other conservative states, you take a state like Nebraska, other very conservative states, it's very helpful. The practicality of the way we elect presidents, if we live in Colorado, which we all do, our vote doesn't matter in the presidential election. And that's just wrong. I mean, think about that. Our vote does not matter. And if you, unless you live in three to five uh, swing states, your votes generally don't count. And uh, most people don't really look at it that way. And it should be explained in more clear terms on basically we've disenfranchised some 90 percent of the American electorate. New York City is going to have ranked choice voting for Mayor Ken Toltz, your political scientist. You write columns for uh, what is it? Times of Israel. Uh, you're all over the place. You've run for office. Will we see any of these reforms? Will they happen in our lifetime? Uh, I I would like to think that uh, it's possible if people like Vic don't uh, do. I mean, if people like Vic commit and don't give up, uh, you know, the view from here is that people who are thoughtful are pushed pushed to the pushed out and pushed aside, um, and it's tragic. It's uh, you know when you see some of the people that serve in office in all levels, municipal you know, state and uh, uh, federal as well. It's the uh, it's changed so much over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years uh, and their level of intellect and their uh, commitment to, you know, being public servants is is just lost. And the, the primary process has has pushed, you know, really sharp good people who were willing to get in there for the good of the public out to the side. Uh, it's a lot of ground to recover. So I do think that, you know, living in Colorado, people know that we've been progressive as far as figuring out ways to encourage more people to be involved in politics by, you know, changing the primary law where even if you are not uh, registered with a party, you could vote in the primary on uh, as long as you decided on primary day to uh, pick a party affiliation so you could vote. Uh, most of the states don't have that yet. I think that's a good reform. I think that increased participation in Colorado's primaries. And, and I think as a result, we have better, uh, with the exception of this Bobert uh, in the third district. Uh, yeah, Lauren Bobert. You know, she's she's really symptomatic of the problem, I think. Uh, but there's a you know a bunch of good people lining up to run against her, and I I hope some good people line up in the Republican side to run against her in the primary, and they reject you know somebody w w like that right away. Uh, I don't know if that's happening. You guys can I tell me. More. I don't think it's happening. I spoke with a guy who was in that race for a little bit, and they don't think she can get beat. Not in a Republican primary, and not in the general. The way that district is drawn right now, and. It makes you think about our fragile democracy. I don't know if you read that letter published in the Washington Post, but I did. And one thing that I'd never thought about, but this call is apropos, 
when a democracy starts to go south, and let's say Trump reemerges or the Republicans take charge, a lot of things could happen in the next couple of years. Well, then smart, talented people start thinking, what are my options? Could I go to New Zealand? Could I move to Israel? What about the south of France? And then you get a brain drain, and then you're starting to circle the drain. And this is how other countries that have had failed democracies react. Victor, did you read that uh, editorial? How fragile is our democracy right now? Very fragile right now. Very, very fragile. I mean, you're talking about Biden won by the narrowest of narrow margins. There's a few states by literally thousands of votes in over 100 million cast nationally. It's incredibly fragile. Um, and make no mistake about it, the fact that what 80 percent of the elected Republicans in Congress supported overturning the election without a scintilla of any proof or legal arguments to, to you know, to, to could stand up in court. I mean, it was absolutely this whole the big lie. But all of it, I mean, the big lie was the culmination of uh, of many conspiracy theories peddled and many just an absolute abdication of America's role throughout the world, leadership throughout the world. Uh, I know that on the G7 that's going on right now, Biden's putting on a happy face. But make no mistake about it, there's real fractures between our Atlantic uh, alliance uh, allies. And we have to uh, – Russia basically has had absolute uh, – their way with interfering with our elections, shutting down critical systems in our economy. And there's been no real significant retaliation against them. They feel emboldened to take, uh, to take uh, part of Crimea. Ultimately, I'm scared they're going to try to eventually overtake all of Ukraine. I mean, the, the, our democracies are incredibly fragile right now. And why is China so emboldened right now? It's largely because of Trump's failed foreign policies. Um, he made us so weak around the world with this America first position. He was such an ignoramus and he had such a bunch of lackeys in his administration it, it, every single tariff that he imposed against China completely backfired on America. So this is a very different world we live in. Uh, I'm a true believer in democracy, but our democracy needs to lead the world, and we need structural reforms within our democracy if, it's, if it has staying power. Otherwise, we're going to be pitted against one another, and we're ultimately going to fail. So this is why really an urgent call right now to really uh, break up this two-party system and really take on some of these difficult, um, you know, disruptive kind of structural changes that are really needed ultimately save the democracy. I'd love to get Ken's opinion on how, what he fe- how, he, how he feels about how fragile our democracy truly is. Ken, go for it. We need the perspective from a guy who is in Asia. Not a lot of people realize Israel is part of Asia, right? Uh, the Middle East. Uh, I don't know. You consider this part of Asia? I didn't. didn't I would never think of it that way. Um, I know it's, I, Israel's I, at the crossroads, but I think that's a little known fact from trivia. But you actually moved from America. Do you feel? Did you do it because of politics, or or explain yourself and? Aren't we losing out by Kenny Toltz leaving America? Isn't this part of uh, how democracies fail? Uh, no, you're not losing out by Ken Toltz moving to Israel uh, because I maintain relationships in the United States and uh, I still contribute. I'm still a citizen of the United States. I'm a dual citizen, as you know, when you uh, move to Israel. 
the law of return allows you to become a citizen of Israel and keep your United States citizenship as well. So I vote in Colorado. Um, but, uh, you know, I just have to say in listening to Vic, um, it brings back the feelings that I had when I watched what happened on January 6th. I was watching the news in Israel and it was live, uh, covered by an Israeli news channel. They had a broadcaster at, on the mall. Uh, it was so, so hard to watch. It was so tragic. It was so scary. I worked in Washington, D.C. I, I have friends in Congress. Uh, I, you know, of course, been in that Capitol building many times. I revere every opportunity I ever had to be in that building uh, and to watch what, what those people did who were, you know, empowered by Trump to go do what they did uh, was it was heartbreaking. And but what's happened since then and the uh, Republicans in Congress trying to essentially re rewrite history or cover it up or not have a formal investigation so we can really know who was involved in bringing those people and in, in all the various aspects is that that is really scary. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the news that came out also about the uh, Justice Department investigating reporters getting their uh, information from their cell phones. Something that I had been saying all along is, you know, if they were when they were done coming for politicians, the next was the media. And I think, you know, this, Craig, is that you're as you're as big a target as somebody who serves in public office. Uh, they, they just would switch their uh, their vitriol and hate and targeting to the media. And if they get if they get politics in the media, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, democracy is over uh, in the United States. And it's it's it, we are very close to the edge. Uh, very, very close. It's very scary. Right. They went after Schiff and Swalwell, two guys who are former prosecutors just like me. And the prosecutor in me is coming out right now saying, look, unless we hold Donald Trump accountable for what he did, all his crimes, then we don't have a hope. That's going to ruin our democracy. The rule of law is imperative. And I'm starting to feel disappointed in another member of our tribe, Merrick Garland, he seems to be bending over backwards for Trump, and I don't like it. I think he's culpable on January 6th. I think he's culpable in New York. What do you think, Victor? Doesn't the man need to be held accountable? Absolutely, but uh, I think that I would disagree with you that Merrick Garland is mishandling the situation. He's allowing the state investigation in New York to go forward, which is a very serious thing, because when you're talking about massive tax fraud and that Trump has apparently or allegedly committed over decades, decades, you know, pumping up assets, deflating assets, cheating on his uh, federal income taxes, cheating on his property taxes, obtaining fraudulent um, commercial loans and the like. Uh, that that strikes at the heart of American capitalism, and that effect, if Trump is not paying any taxes and ripping off the system, then why should every everyone else uh, continue to pay into pay our uh, federal it, taxes? It, it, it just came out that all these billionaires are avoiding taxes. It's, no, it's, that's very different. That, that you're conflating what the, that's that. You could make the same argument for any person that owns a privately held company or a publicly traded company because most of their assets are in the stock of that company. That company appreciates in value and they don't liquidate All any right. of their shares. I, I so they like don't those charges. Value. But what about January 6th? That was one, that was the crime of the century. And, and you still have Trump out there giving a speech last Saturday night 
calling the last election the crime of the century. I mean, when are we going to let the truth prevail? That's what courtrooms are for. You can't prosecute somebody if he, if he ultimately gets indicted and gets convicted and serves a long prison sentence in the state of New York. There's not really any significant value for going after him for the insurrection, which is a much tougher case to make as well. I think they're playing it perfectly. I'm very anxious to see what the grand jury comes back with in New York. I certainly hope that if the evidence is there, they seem to be very confident that the evidence is. I'd like to hear what the grand jury has to say. If they come back with a sweeping set of indictments, uh, Trump could be serving a significant portion of the remaining portion of his life in jail. And I think that would be a tremendous uh, accomplishment if that happens, because it shows that any person uh, is not above the law. This notion that the Justice Department has said a sitting president is immune from prosecution while in office is contrary to the rule of law. I mean, if you go and commit felonies, I don't it doesn't shouldn't make a difference whether you're the president of the United States or you're an ordinary Joe uh, and it should make no difference at all. So it didn't. Trump has gotten away with literally murder for so long uh, that I'm very I'm not as concerned as you are about him being prosecuted for January 6th. I want to see what happens with the with the investigation in New York. I do think the group in Georgia should go after him for the interfering with tampering with the results there. I think that's a much stronger legal case to be made. And I haven't heard much about that. But uh, there's so many other serious challenges America faces. And we've got to bridge our gaps. We're still at at war with each other in this country, all these culture wars, all this nonsensical stuff, while China is continuing to grow, Russia is getting becoming more and more aggressive, our, our alliances are more fragile. We have to have more of a bigger picture perspective on some of these issues than just going after Trump. Right. But you can't really heal until you hold him accountable with some testimony in a courtroom. And I prosecuted a lot of habitual criminals and some of them, I relished it. If they committed violent crimes and they were already many times felons before, I threw the book at them. And I said, look, I'm not going to make up anything. If you didn't really commit this burglary back in the 80s or uh, this robbery in the 70s, then let me know. But you are the guy. I'm going to throw the book at you. Ken Toltz, you're probably more a public defender type. Am I wrong? Don't you think we have to hit... Donald Trump with every legitimate charge. Don't make things up, but don't give him a pass on anything. Well, no, I, I completely agree. The um, uh, investigations in New York State and in Georgia that are going on right now, uh, I think are significant. And I, I think that's a, really our hope is that uh, indictments are brought this year, later this year, uh, um, so that the it influences what's going to happen in the 2022 elections, and he's not going to be—he's going to be busy on being on trial and defending himself in various places. Um, and the and the rule of law has to be upheld, and the fact that no one single person is above the law has to be upheld as well. Um, I mean, talk about the crime of the century. It's you know Donald Trump has committed so many crimes. We we don't even know uh, what happened in, in the White House to enable all these people to come together on January 6th and get into the uh, Capitol the way that they did. But it is uh, knowable. He's been busy, yeah. you know, arresting people. Yeah, it's knowable. Exactly. Right. We, we have to get to the bottom of it. I hope we will. But now we're at the bottom of this show. The tennis match about to be decided. 
And I have a competition for the two of you. I'm going to start with Ken Toltz all the way in Israel. If you can pronounce the names of the two people who are competing for the women's finals in the French Open, I'm going to be impressed. Go for it. I cannot. <laughs> I, I, I totally cannot. <laughs> Victor, I bet Victor can. No, I can't. Pavlo, Pavlo Chenkovo is one of them, the Russian. She's the 31 seed. And the other woman, uh, I believe, is from Czech Republic. It's quite unbelievable that the women's tour is um, that deep. Basically, they have a finalist of a, one of the four majors, and they don't have a single top uh, play, woman's player in the top 30 in the finals on both sides of the draw. I mean, it's quite remarkable. So it just shows you that the women's tennis is really quite deep, whereas the men's tennis is still really a tale of, of two or three players, still the big three, although Federer, I think, is, seems to be dropping off a little bit. We'll soon see how well his game will hold up at Wimbledon in a couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, the other players that are coming up, Dan- Danel Medvedev and Zverev and Sissipas, uh, they're great, great players, uh, but they they still haven't really broken through yet. So uh, the men's game is super fascinating. I mean, for all the tennis enthusiasts is out there, I hope some are listening into your show. It's truly an unprecedented celebratory time in, in tennis, in men's tennis particularly. I mean, you think about it, the game's gone on for hundreds, more than 100 years. And at this very era, we have the three greatest men in the history of the world to play tennis at the same exact era. And between those three men, they've won 58, that's right, 58 Grand Slam titles. I'm talking about Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. So it's just an extraordinary time to have three, it's be like three Babe Ruths playing in the same era. I mean, it's really unbelievable is how it came about. And they're all, for whatever, I don't know what the water is in Europe, but Europe is completely owns men's tennis. I mean, it's incredible the amount of talent out of Europe, especially we don't have a single U.S. men's player today uh, in the top 30, which is also very unusual. I mean, you're talking about we've got a great storied history of American men's tennis with Agassi and Sampras and many others. So um, it's a very fascinating time. I mean, you know, it's my passion. I absolutely love tennis. I'd love to bring, bring professional tennis to Colorado someday. So at the top of their game, Rod Laver, John Newcomb, uh, Arthur Ashe, no chance against these guys? No chance. No chance. No chance. No, no chance. <laughs> because they're bigger, who are you picking? Big, bigger, stronger, faster. Rafi Nadal is a normal-looking guy, kind of. Vic, who are you picking between Nadal and Djokovic coming up in the next semifinal? I'm picking Djokovic in an upset in four. Wow. Wow, that would be a huge upset. What about Rafael Nadal? Uh, you know, one of the cool things about tennis is size doesn't necessarily matter. I like to have a big serve because I'm tall, but Rafi Nadal, Ken Toltz, give us your tennis prognostication. Well, I, I thought you were going to mention Diego Schwartzman. You know, you know I, Diego. I, yeah, the, the I love Ju- to bring you the from, Jewish boy. From Argentina, who is 5'6". And, and Craig, the average height of the, on the men's tour now is about your height. Are you 6'4"? I used to be 6'5". I think I'm down to 6'3". I just completely skipped 6'4 on the way down. 
All right, we're, we're going to compromise and call you 6'4". And that is the height of the men's tennis players. Now it's, it's, that's, that's one of the big differences physically is the, the height of these guys, the size, they're so much bigger than they ever used to be. Uh, and so they can cover the court and they, they hit a, a service angle that, uh, you know, the, the shorter guys can. And that's, what's amazing about Schwartzman. He's in the top 10. He's five, six. He's, he's, uh, he's my size. I love the guy. Here's the thing. Those matches matter. Nadal. Uh, Djokovic, that'll be interesting, and we'll have the result on Saturday. Victor, you probably bet on uh, the upset too, right? <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't bet on that. I, I usually don't bet. I know you really like to bet on the sports uh, betting. I um, I bet on business every day, so I take my big gambles in running my company. <laughs> well, here's the contest. Here's the contest I want to bet on, and I'm not sure who to pick. Tolts v. Mitchell. When can we have the match? I want to watch who's going to win. We're, we're, it's going to be 65 and over. When Vic turns 65, <laughs> we'll have that match. We'll play in the Maccabee games, Ken and I. There you go. Right. You but go. you guys are going to be Israeli together. So I'm the guy who's going to have to play. In, I, I did try out for the Maccabee team in basketball and golf, and I did not make it. But, God, I wish I would have. I was looking forward to the possibility uh, it's great talking to you guys, and uh, it's good to get you together, as they say on Passover, maybe next year in Jerusalem, right? I would love that. I would love if you guys would come to Israel and we could have Passover together. What do you think, Vic? Um, I, I count me in. You All right. guys name the date and place, and I'll be there. Fellas, I can't thank you enough for a fascinating hour. You are both still very involved, committed to finding solutions. And that's the way we're going to save democracy, save America, save Israel, and save the world. God bless you guys. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, And Vic, great to to be on with you. Great to talk with you as well, Ken. And thanks very much, Craig, for the opportunity. And congratulations with your show. And uh, look forward to coming back again. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. 
Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Mark Harris. Mark Harris, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, great, great. Glad to be here. You know, this is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you. You are part of Colorado's ceasefire. Tell everybody about that. Uh, Colorado Ceasefire uh, is the longest serving, um, let's see, how how can I best put it? Uh, It's the longest serving statewide grassroots gun violence prevention organization in the state of Colorado. Um, It's made up of uh, everyday people, uh, parents, teachers, students, lawyers like me, um, uh, people from all facets of life who wanted to get together and uh, hopefully save lives. What a worthy mission. How did you come to the cause? Well, I, I think it started uh, in, in 2012 when we had uh, both Sandy Hook uh, and, uh, and then the Aurora uh, theater shooting, uh, both in that year. Uh, I was just maybe sick to my stomach and I uh, started thinking and searching about what I could do. And uh, about four or five years ago, I decided I, I couldn't stand it any longer. I had to do something uh, to help uh, save lives, to try and bring some sanity back to the to the um, uh, the gun rights uh, uh, battle, if you will. Uh, and I had to do something. And I found out about Colorado Ceasefire through my wife. Uh, she had a connection um, with Tom Mauser, who is uh, one of the parents who lost their child in Columbine. And I reached out to Colorado Ceasefire and, and Mr. Mauser, and uh, I said, I, I'd like to do anything I could to help you. And uh, I've been working at it ever since. What are you, some bleeding heart liberal commie pink <laughs> bastard? I mean, where are you coming from? Let, let, let's tell the Mark Harris story. I think it's fascinating, well, and it might uh, contradict uh, people's images of who gets involved in common sense gun control. Tell us a little about yourself, Mark. Well, uh, born in Savannah, Georgia in the South, uh, lived there for a while. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, so I'm an Air Force brat. Uh, I lived all over the country, Georgia, California, Louisiana, South Dakota, uh, Germany, uh, you know, all over. Um, I'm now a civil defense lawyer. Um, uh, I do a lot of professional liability defense. Um, and uh, I am a gun, a gun owner. 
Um, so I, you know, I like to think I'm not the the uh, the uh, typical bleeding heart liberal uh, that's joined this cause, the cause to try and and, and bring some reasonable gun uh, safety regulation to the forefront and save some lives. Wow, do you have a different perspective than I do? We are both attorneys, and I think we both started uh, in 1981. Am I right? I I, I started in 1984, 37 years. Well, I'm I'm older than you, but I never have lived (laughs) in Georgia or Tennessee, let alone go to a football game on those campuses. That's different. The South is different. Being a civil defense attorney— Getting paid by, I assume, uh, insurance companies are important clients, right? That's correct. And that tends to be conservative, and I don't know your politics, but I think the point is that this should not really be a political issue, should it? I I, I have never understood why it's become a political issue. Uh, the right versus the left, uh, uh, conservative versus liberal, Republican, Democrat. I, I don't. We at Colorado Ceasefire want to work with anybody who wants to get together to figure out a way to save people's lives, to come up with some type of legislation. And I'm on the Legislative Action uh, Board of Colorado Ceasefire, and our job uh, is to um, uh, find laws, craft laws um, that will. Uh, end up saving lives uh, through gun safety uh, rules and regulations, uh, and and then we we uh, find and support legislators le- legislators who want to to back our legislation. We uh, have a lobbyist. We lobby the the state legislature. We advocate for these laws. We bring data uh, to to the public and, and and convince them, argue with them. Uh, persuade them that this is the right way to go. This is this is going to be bringing some sanity to uh, the 393 million guns that we have in the United States. It's just it's just ludicrous. Right, and we can't throw up our hands and do nothing. I suppose that we could, but that's not what you and I have chosen to do. And God bless you for being on this legislative action board. Does your legal training come in handy? Well, it does. You know, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not the legal counsel for Colorado Ceasefire. I'm a, a dad, uh, a father. You know, uh, 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 just a, a person who wants to do the right thing. Um, we definitely have a Second Amendment in this country, and there, there's no doubt about it. There's, you know, we we accept that, but we don't accept the fact we can't. Uh, walk around in safety. We can't go to the theater, to the to our church, to the grocery store. We can't go anywhere without the threat of uh, of a shooting, a mass shooting, uh, assault weapons. Uh, they're everywhere, and so uh, you know, being a lawyer, uh, it does help me in looking at the legislation um, to, to see where. Uh, where there's ambiguities, where there's loopholes, where there's uh, disagreements, and, and how to bridge those disagreements on legislation. So yes, it does. But really, uh, I wanted to get on the board to do anything, whether it was lawyer work, whether it was calling my uh, calling the governor, whether it was uh, making thank you calls for contributions or thank you calls for people who came out to to support us on a, on an event. Uh, anything that I can do to further this effort to try and save lives. I think that's amazing. 
because a lot of people get into the fight because of a personal tragedy that affects them, their family. In my case, a lot of clients, people I encounter in my uh, legal world. But you did it just as a good person because somebody else's because somebody else's child got injured. And let's face it, it's uh, self-serving on our parts because we are worried for our children, not just the fear that they'll get shot themselves, but that they have to grow up and live in a world with this kind of violence. It's just unacceptable. It, it is, and I, I, you know, I, I'm sitting at home after after I finish work, and I and I uh, turn on the news, and I see the latest shooting, uh, uh, mass shooting, and uh, and I think of all of the individuals besides the folks that have been that have been murdered, uh, their families, their friends, uh, and, and all the loss that's out there, and it's every single day. And I simply said to myself, hey, Mark, you've got to do something. You you've got to get off the couch. You've got to get out of the house. You've got to. Uh, you you've got to find a way to to serve to try and, and bring some reasonableness to uh, the 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 gun world, if you will, because that's you know, with 393 million guns, United States and counting, um, we just have to do something. Right, but not all the news is promising on the legal front. Just last week, a California federal judge ruled that AR-15s were great weapons to have. Precisely the kind of weapon that Scalia was talking about in Heller, because it's been sold so frequently and so many people have them that, guess what? The Second Amendment says keep your hands away from the AR-15. What did you think of that ruling and what can be done about it? Craig, how much time do we have? We have as much time (laughs) as you need. That's the beauty, because it's a podcast and... People who care about this issue want to hear lawyers debate the future. What can we yeah. do? And talk to us about that appellate process. Uh, look, look. I uh, Heller decision came out in two thousand eight, um, authored by Justice Scalia. Not one of my favorites. It was a five to four decision. Um, constitutional law is uh, yeah, ever since law school, and, and when I was in constitutional law class. Uh, it dawned on me that um, the interpretation of the Constitution is whatever five people uh, say Correct. Is, uh, at any one time. And at that time in 2008, it was five to four. Now we have a six to three court, uh, and I'm not looking forward to, to future decisions there. Right. Uh, on, on three Democrats. people who took the bench saying, I love Scalia. I don't care what Mark Harris thinks of him. I love him. Right. So Heller, uh, Heller was about the District of Columbia's ban on handguns uh, uh, anywhere and on having rifles um, had to be uh, locked or, uh, uh, or unloaded or disassembled at home. That was too far uh, uh, in light of our uh, Second Amendment uh, right uh, to, to, uh, uh, to keep and bear arms. Uh, that's at least partially what it says. Uh, but that's that they interpreted it was an individual right, uh, and this was too far to go. Uh, this wholesale ban on handguns uh, wasn't really about uh, uh, AR-15s or AK-47s right. or assault weapons. Uh, but uh, but what it did say, uh, and I uh, I never let anybody forget this. Justice Scalia said the Second Amendment is not without being subject to regulation. 
um, there, uh, uh, there should be uh, and can be many areas of regulation uh, on guns. Um, whether it's the uh, whether it's ammunition, whether it's uh, 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 you know semiotic or automatic, uh, all different types of uh, different regulations that that can be uh, allowed, including bans on various types of weapons that are more military in use. So there there are there is a a wide spectrum of regulations that could be offered and are being offered coast to coast on organizations like our like our group Colorado ceasefire uh, I think there's uh, was it 34 organizations like ours in in, in, uh, in other states um, and hopefully growing uh, we want one in every in every state um, uh, because the NRA certainly is in every state and here in Colorado we have the the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain gun owners who are, if anything, even more right, rabid but, but, about but here's gun the rights. Thing. I, I understand how the liberals remaining on the court are going to vote the way you and I mm-hmm. would. My God, it's right in the Second Amendment in order to have a well-regulated militia. But yeah. Heller kind of got rid of that whole militia thing and said, forget about that. People have a right to weapons. Now we can argue about which weapons, but if they're popular with people, and you know that uh, the three replacements since then are going to go his way, so I don't see it uh, turning out good for people who advocate for common sense gun control without a constitutional amendment. I don't see that happening, or more Supreme Court justices. You know, I think the latter is the only way to go. Um, uh, I mean, either replacing those, you know, through through normal attrition, et cetera, or or expanding the bench. Because it, I, I agree with you, the the six to three makeup currently is bad news for um, gun safety folks. Um, uh, because if there is a if there is an assault weapons ban case that gets to the Supreme Court, I ha- I'd have to say uh, they're going to um, get rid of it. Um, they, they will not support it. Um, uh, yes, the Heller decision, I thought one of the main flaws in that case was its weak, I'll say pathetic analysis of the first half of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That entire clause was was given short shrift in the in the opinion uh, and they went mainly towards the uh, whether or not there was an individual right as opposed to a collective right and that's that was the the the, the guts of that case and I thought I thought you know for Scalia an originalist you know the, I think the 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 number one originalist interpreter of the United States Constitution to ignore uh, uh, mainly the first half of the Second Amendment, I thought that was a major flaw. And hopefully there'll be a case down the road where they can look at that again uh, and uh, balance out that Second Amendment right between a collective right and an individual right. But yes, there are six folks currently on the Supreme Court that are not uh, favorable to gun safety folks. Um, and uh, you know we, we've got we've to put more people on there uh, one way or the other. Um, because otherwise, in my lifetime, uh, uh, there's just not, uh, you know, there's just not going to be a favorable balance on the court. All right. Forget America. No, never forget America. We love America. But let's go to a Absolutely. happier place, Colorado. You guys have had a lot of success. Tell everybody what Colorado sees fire and you have done during this legislative session. 
Craig, thank you for this opportunity because I think this year, um, this has been the best year that we have had in terms of identifying, crafting, uh, legislating, lobbying, acting gun safety bills since at least 2013, if not uh, in our entire 20-year existence. We've passed six gun safety-related bills this year. Two of the six have already been signed into law by Governor Polis. Uh, the one for lost and stolen uh, uh, weapons, which is named after Isabel Fallis, I represent her boyfriend. We will get to that, but keep going. Okay. Uh, that yeah, was so one the, accomplishment. So it requires that if you lose or you, uh, if a weapon's stolen, you have an obligation. It's a mandatory report within five days to the authorities. That's going to be an interesting law to enforce. Think about it. Say your child steals the gun. You have to call the police. Yeah, now you do. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the the burden is on the um, uh, responsible gun owner to do the responsible thing to report when it when a weapon is lost or stolen. That seems that seems to me to be eminently reasonable, fair, and I I can't even believe that we have to enact a law to get that done. Uh, gun owners. Uh, mainly are responsible, and, and the, as the NRA already, already says, they're they're all re responsible. I don't I don't believe that, but but on on the large part they are. Uh, but we've enacted this law. I think it, it you know it, it places a, a reasonable uh, duty upon the gun owner to report uh, a lost and stolen weapon. Uh, and it also helps out police in the in the uh, the area of straw purchases for guns. Right. Um, so when a person uh, when a person who can't get a gun uh, because he can't get through a background check, gets somebody else to buy them a gun. It's a straw purchase. Uh, and then that straw purchaser somehow loses the gun or it's stolen and then never reports it. Uh, and the gun is out there. Uh, this this law will hopefully help the, uh, the police to track straw purchasers. So it has an added benefit besides just just uh, letting the, the police force know that there's a, a gun out on the street. Uh, the other uh, law that Governor Polis has signed is the safe storage law. Again, a law that you would think that we would have already had or or would be uh, wouldn't even be in need of, of passing legislation. But homeowners, uh, gun owners who uh, have weapons at home, who also have youth or other uh, folks that are unauthorized to have a weapon, they have a duty now to keep those guns stored safely, whether it's a gun safe, a trigger lock, that sort of thing, to hopefully avoid accidents uh, uh, or the uh, unauthorized access of weapons. So those two have passed. We have four other great bills that have been passed uh, that we hope Governor Polis will sign. The Office of Gun Violence Prevention uh, the extended background checks law, the uh, local uh, regulation of firearms, which is basically a repeal of the NRA's preemption law that got passed in 2000. Um, that's going to allow folk, uh, uh, cities and towns like Boulder to uh, uh, to recommit to the assault weapons ban that the judge had recently overturned before that King Super shooting. 
so uh, and the last one is uh, is uh, domestic violence relinquishment of firearms. It we already had that law, but uh, it only applied to uh, to married folks. This one it closes the boyfriend loophole, if you will, uh, where uh, significant others, folks that you're living with. Um, uh, uh, they also are required to relinquish their guns with a do domestic violence type uh, conviction. So these these laws, uh, I think, uh, aren't uh, the prototypical gun grabbing laws that the NRA always complains about. They are targeted, crafted laws that will hopefully save lives, just like we did uh, two years ago when we passed or helped pass. The ERPO bill, the Extreme Risk Protection Order bill, which I think is a phenomenal law that helps family members and, and law enforcement um, temporarily uh, take away guns from folks that are that are exhibiting signs of uh, of being a harm to themselves or others. Uh, it's a great tool to hopefully save lives as well. And so this year we we have passed some laws. Hopefully the governor will sign them all, uh, and uh, we can save lives uh, in in the years ahead. And, uh, and, uh, and it'll spur us on to uh, to identify further laws um, uh, that can that can uh, further that effort. Well, I give you hearty congratulations on all those laws. I think it's nice. I think some of it was low hanging fruit, and I was hoping I was yep. hoping that you guys could jump up and to keep going with my metaphors. And I'm thinking about food. What about the big enchilada? What about assault weapons? I mean, why why in the wake of King Supers, another assault weapon atrocity, why not go for the big enchilada outlawing of assault weapons? That that is a great question, Craig. I am a huge advocate of an assault weapons ban. Uh, for the state of Colorado. There is no reason that military assault weapons need to be in the hands of civilians uh, to protect themselves at home. Uh, uh, and uh, it, we, we've had so many, so many mass shootings. It's like it's almost a daily occurrence. Um, uh, something's got to be done. But assault weapons ban is a heavy lift, Craig, as, as you know. That, uh, you know, we we passed in 2013. We we helped pass the uh, large capacity magazine ban, uh, where uh, magazines for uh, for guns like assault weapons uh, that, that can't hold more than 15 15 bullets. Uh, that was passed, and uh, along with uh, universal background checks and, and a few other uh, excellent uh, laws, we got passed that year, the year after Sandy Hook, and the year after the Aurora Theater shooting. Uh, and uh, the NRA and the Rocky Mountain gun owners came after us, uh, and they uh, they uh, successfully recalled uh, two senators, and another senator uh, resigned rather than be recalled. So that, that affected three legislators, and that is a chilling effect uh, on our legislature. And uh, I think folks uh, in our state legislature, which uh, the Democrats control the House, they control the Senate, they are uh, in the in the governor's office, but that uh, that is something they think about. Um, uh, is an assault weapons ban overreaching? I don't think so. Uh, I think that is that uh, that is something that uh, that in the, the face of all of our tragedies, Columbine, Aurora, the the STEM shooting, Walmart, the the King Supers in Boulder, just on and on here in Colorado, 
too many tragedies, and most of them uh, involve uh, assault weapons. And uh, we we've just we just got to do something, and I I think that is a reasonable effort, and I think it's uh, I think most of the people in Colorado are in our favor. You and I are both trial attorneys, and even when you're in them, there are a lot of twists and turns. It's like roller coaster. One side's winning, the other side is. And that's kind of the long view of what's going on in the gun debate, because one up and down was the passage in 2013 of uh, the large capacity magazines, etc. The pushback was enormous, and it was on talk radio. I listened to a lot of it, did not participate in it, but they celebrated it as a great victory. But when they achieved that high, it appears that the people of Colorado reacted and said, not so fast. We're going to vote you guys out, and they don't have anything close to equal representation in the state house. How do you see this roller coaster ride? Who is ascendant? And would you agree that they, they thought they, that they had the cat's meow when they won that uh, recall? The Independence Institute, aren't they financed by the NRA? I mean, those guys just loved what they did with that recall. Absolutely. But I think, Craig, we've reached a tipping point here in Colorado with all of our tragedies that, uh, uh, that, are, that have been ongoing for the last 20 years. The people of the state of Colorado want to be safe in grocery stores, in theaters, in churches, uh, everywhere. Uh, they want to be safe. They, 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 they don't want to be involved in a mass shooting, which seemingly occurs uh, on a, uh, if, uh, at least a weekly basis here. Uh, look, I think we reached a tipping point, and I'll point to you our last session. When we, when we uh, 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 helped to get the extreme risk protection order passed over extensive opposition uh, by the NRA and the Rocky Mountain gun owners – uh, and it was passed. Uh, what did they do? They attempted to recall Tom Sullivan, one of the main advocates. Tom lo lost his son Alex in the Aurora Theater shooting. Uh, he he campaigned for reasonable gun uh, regulation. He uh, uh, was elected. He then helped pass the ERPO bill. And as a result, uh, those folks uh, in the opposition sought to recall him. And it was a miserable. Failure. Let's linger on that failure on their part. Who led that recall movement? Uh, well, uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm not even sure. It was, it was Christy Burton Brown. And you Christy know Burton who Brown. Christy Burton Brown is? She was behind the personhood initiative that failed overwhelmingly several times. So she's been behind some of the biggest losing propositions in Colorado history. Do you know what her current job is? Uh, no, tell me. She's the head of the Colorado Republican Party. She's their chairwoman. And that's the type of overreach that I think has been exhibited over the last several years that has resulted in a tipping point in our favor, in, in favor of reasonable gun regulation uh, with the ultimate goal to save lives. I, I think they've overreached and overreached and overreached. They, let, let me give you an example. Uh, 
Besides getting bills passed, Colorado Ceasefire over the last 20 years has done the tough job, and that is opposing all of those folks and the bad bills that they put forward. They put forward a stand your ground uh, at their business uh, law for 15 consecutive years, and we have helped defeat it every single year. They wanted guns in schools for eight consecutive years defeated every time. They wanted concealed carry laws without a permit for nine consecutive years. We defeated it. Uh, and on and on. Um, uh, every year, they come up with what we call a, a, a panel or slew of bad gun bills. And every year, we fight them. We go to the legislature. We have our lobbies. We go and we testify. We explain to the legislature why these bills are bad. And every single year, we turn them back. Uh, and and uh, I know, so but it, I I give you credit for your W's, but I have uh, two W's to throw back at you: Western Slope and Weld County. I mean, they are resistant. They they like them some Lauren Boebert. Uh, Weld County may want to secede from Colorado over stuff like guns and energy. And so, <laughs> I mean. There's a part of Colorado where Colorado ceasefire is not exactly prevalent. That's true. And I, 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 obviously, and that's true nationwide. Uh, we're in the Mountain West. Uh, there's a history uh, of gun ownership. There's a, a, a the history of the West. Uh, but uh, again, what we're trying to do is uh, craft very specific laws that – uh, will work towards saving lives. I, I don't think it should be a partisan uh, uh, breakdown. And uh, you know, we welcome all sides, and we will continue to talk with them. Uh, Colorado Ceasefire has also, uh, besides its legislative action board, also has an outreach board, which was created a few years back to um, uh, to assist us in going out to all parts of the state to educate the folks, to, to, to explain what we're trying to do, to explain we're not trying to confiscate all guns. We're, we're, we're trying to do whatever we can uh, uh, in conjunction with the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution and the, and the Constitution of Colorado to, to save lives and to come up with reasonable gun safety uh, uh, restrictions uh, in, to reduce gun violence wherever we can, whether it's homicides, whether it's suicides, whether it's accidents, all those areas uh, we look at and we try and figure out what we can do. And look, it's a never-ending uh, struggle. Uh, some of those folks, we uh, obviously, we will never convince. But again, I, I believe based on polling that, that, that is out there that assault weapons ban, uh, universal background checks, uh, large capacity magazines, the extreme risk protection order, all of those things have significant public support, much more than just a bare majority of support. Uh, and I think that that is a tipping point that we are going to pursue. Uh, my preference, and, and, and again, uh, I'm not speaking for Colorado ceasefire as a whole, but my preference is, is certainly an assault weapons ban here in Colorado. But, uh, but you know, uh, Colorado is one state out of 50, uh, and guns travel across state lines. And I would much prefer to see an assault weapons ban uh, enacted federally. I know President Biden has uh, advocated for one, just like in the 1990s, which worked. Uh, but, you know, that's going to be a heavy lift. 
uh, we're probably going to need a few more uh, on his side to uh, to get that passed. It is with the Republican Party uh, captivated by Donald Trump. Still, it makes no sense. And back in the day, I was stupid enough to think Donald Trump may support reasonable gun control. He had given contributions that way back in the day. And in the wake of Parkland, one of the early challenges in his presidency, when all those high school kids got shot, I think he was shook and he had a cabinet meeting and he said, we're going to have a red flag law. It's ridiculous. How do these people who are known threats get these large weapons? It's got to stop. And then he got beat back. My God, what happened there, Mark Harris? Well, as I understand it, um, uh, of course, let me just say first that uh, President Trump appeared to have a tweet on both sides of every issue, as far as I could tell. But in regard to to, uh, gun regulation and backing a red flag or extreme risk protection order type law that we we did pass here in Colorado, uh, he was in favor of it for a day or two. Uh, And then I I believe Wayne LaPierre and the NRA folks uh, had a little visit with him. Uh, in uh, in the Oval Office, and uh, within 24 to 40 hours, he had backed off his his pledge and uh, refused to do anything, and didn't want to talk about it again. Um, that's what, that's a lack what of backbone. What would Wayne Lapierre have on Trump, and vice versa? We know they're both corrupt. Lapierre, that's being established in court. He had a phony bankruptcy. My God, did you see him and his wife take that fully paid for safari in Africa to kill mature elephants? It was, did you see that? I, 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 I can't, that, that was the worst thing I've ever seen on video. I, I, I do not understand people like that. I, I, I there's just no, tell excuse. people, uh, tell yeah. people what they would see if they watched that. I've I've seen pictures of Wayne Lapierre and his wife um, uh, posing with uh, dead elephants that they have shot uh, at point blank range on a on a a hunt, if you will, uh, arranged for them. Uh, it, it's just ridiculous. But they didn't uh, even well, kill them cleanly. They were terrible shots, and the elephants suffered. And Mrs. Lapierre yes, they did. goes up. Oh, you were a good boy to the elephant as he lays dying. It, uh, it's, yeah, it's just what just kind sickening. of human it, it, being it, are you? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't understand that type of trophy uh, execution, if you will. But uh, yeah, that's that's that, that's apparently the type of people they are. Um, but look, the I think the the uh, the state of New York and the attorney general are are investigating uh, and dealing with the NRA for all of its faults and, and problems and Bad corruption. Trump. And so, uh, uh, yeah, they, they are as well investigating Trump. And I I will be paying very close attention on a daily basis to see what what comes out of that investigation. But uh, but you know that organization um, changed in the 1970s. It went from a, 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 a field and stream, a hunting organization, uh, to a partisan political uh, advocacy group that favored gun manufacturers over gun owners. And I, that is that is unquestioned as far as I'm concerned. In everything that I've seen and read, um, they favor the gun manufacturers on everything. They oppose every single possible reasonable uh, restriction or gun safety legislation that's ever put up. Uh, so 
they're they're no help. They're they're not part of the solution. They are part of the problem, and and uh, we will continue the fight here in Colorado. I think that's great. My children, thank you. Even if they're not aware of all that you are doing for them, it's really about the future, how we are going to live in this world. I went on Thursday night to uh, the vigil at Bella Thales Gardens at 17th and Park. My client was there. His girlfriend shot to death. He gravely injured by a man with an assault weapon that he got from a Denver police sergeant. That's that Bella Thales law we're talking about. I know you've been following the matter, Mark. I could use your professional help because I want to get answers for my client. I think that's reasonable. After all, when you get shot for no reason by a guy out his apartment window with a weapon that was owned by a Denver police sergeant, aren't you entitled to know the history of that weapon and how it came to be acquired? Those are extremely important issues. Uh, not everybody is entitled to own a weapon. This this person uh, that committed this act uh, apparently uh, did not own the weapon. It was was it was it stolen from the the this ex police officer? Was it uh, was it borrowed from him? Was it just uh, was it just there and available for him to use whenever he wanted? Uh, we don't know. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, ex-police officer, uh, Mr. Polica, uh, from what I've read in the, in the, the Denver Post, um, was a, a buddy with this guy, uh, Mr. Close, for uh, what uh, a lot, two decades uh, and uh, apparently uh, allowed uh, Mr. Close to uh, – to possess that 8K47, uh, and uh, it wasn't even reported uh, uh, lost or stolen or involved. Well, it wasn't reported lost or stolen ever. It was, as I understand, it was reported that. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, my 8K47 was apparently involved in that shooting involving Miss Thales. That's how it was reported a, a week or so after after uh, the event. Um, See, I'd like to uh, correct you and say, no, let me tell you, this is what really happened, but I don't know, and I represent the victim in the case. Darian Simon would like to know. The family of the late Bella Thales would like to know. But beyond that, I think it's important for the people of Denver and Colorado to know because this was a police officer. What's going on? Uh, He also had a side business called... Tyrant Arms LLC. And you and I have been around this debate on the Second Amendment. And some people think, look, we have a right to a weapon to protect our home. And you and I would agree, right? And Absolutely. And and yet there are other people who say, no, we have a right to an armory, including assault weapons, because we may have to fight the government someday when it gets tyrannical. And that's why I have a company called Tyrant Arms LLC. There's that side of the debate. And even though you and I are like, are you kidding me? There's a sizable percentage of Americans who believe that. Yeah, I, 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 I am not uh, of that same belief. But I, let, me, let me say this. But, there, but you would agree besides... there are people out there who take that position, including, I expect, Rocky Mountain gun owners. Right. I mean, uh, the the Second Amendment history in general uh, is about self-defense. It's about assisting the government in times of war, rebellion, or insurrection. Uh, It's about slavery. 
uh, and uh, keeping control of slaves. And there is an element about uh, who, who believe for whatever reason that the Second Amendment was created to uh, allow them to defend themselves against tyrannical government oppression. I, I, I don't believe that was the main element uh, at all, uh, but I understand they're out there. Uh, and I also understand in this this case, besides the use of an AK-47, there was also a, a, allegedly the a use of a large capacity magazine. Several. Um, several. So those have been outlawed, as you know, since 2013. Um, so I, I'm interested to find out about where uh, uh, this this shooter came in possession of those magazines. And God uh, we, love you we need for to stop it. that. Right. You don't know Bella. You don't know Darian. But you know our society is at a tipping point. We've got to make some good decisions, and we can't do it without discovering the true information. I don't know whether Politica is a victim in all of this. I'd like to know if somehow he safely stored it, and yet the guy stole the combo. Anything is possible. I want to hear about it. And it's important for people who are on uh, Colorado ceasefire and— Every year thinking about new legislation, it's important for you to understand what's really going on in these gun tragedies. Right. I I, I understand that um, this uh, alleged shooter was – well, I understand that one of his defenses is uh, insanity, is the insanity defense. So it seems to me that the extreme risk protection order law that we helped pass could have come into play. Um, if somebody had been paying attention to this gentleman uh, and his his uh, behavior, uh, and you know sought a protection order, uh, but you know, and again, we still don't know any of the circumstances around about how he came to be in possession of that AK forty seven. Guys, so, you make a great uh, point. And uh, there's Sergeant Politica with his company, Tyrant Arms LLC, reporting nothing, nothing about the dangers posed by. His pal, who he grew up, we're told they grew up in Lakewood together. And as for that red flag law, I have a history of that because I was on Denver Trump radio where I was the only guy advocating for the Zach Parrish law. And I had Zach Parrish's father on. I had his widow, Grace, who gave the most moving eulogy I've ever heard. And they were in favor of this law as was uh, Tony Spurlock, the Douglas County Sheriff, as at the time was George Brockler, who I had on my show. And for three hours, I lobbied for it, and yet it fell short, and then it came back. And in the meantime, you had people like uh, the Weld County Sheriff and others saying, we're not going to enforce this law. And... uh, I mean, all these laws, the legislative successes that you had this last session, do you worry that there are going to be some sheriffs who say, no, we're not going to enforce this in my jurisdiction? Well, there there, there was that outcry from the various sheriffs around Colorado 
um, in 2018 when we first proposed the law. Uh, it didn't get enacted in 2018. We came back in 2019, uh, explained ourselves more, provided more data. We're not the only state that has a, a red flag law like like ERPO. Uh, and we, we advocated for it. We justified it. We said the things that we thought it could do in terms of saving lives. And, and lo and behold, we got it passed uh, in 2019. We've had an entire year of 2020 of the law being in effect, and I don't know if you've seen uh, in the Denver Post they ran a, a, a big article examining its use over the over the year 2020 uh, and the fact that uh, all of the parade of horribles that the NRA and the Rocky Mountain gun owners said would happen uh, did not happen. It wasn't abused. It wasn't uh, you know, used recklessly. It wasn't used in retaliation. It was used by folks who, who saw people that were in need of help, that were mentally ill, that were confused, that were suicidal, uh, that uh, expressed ill will, and, and they put that law to work, and they went to a court, explained the situation to court, got an order, and guns were taken away successfully, and hopefully lives were saved. And that that uh, that track record, uh, I think, is very important because we we advocated that uh, the law would be used properly, and lo and behold, it has. Right. Uh, you were and right, so- and talk radio was wrong. And that charge against <laughs> it, the parade of horribles, it was daily fodder for Denver Trump radio. And somebody needs to stand up to those people, and you don't need to do it. I'm going to do it plenty. And I can't thank you <laughs> enough for— uh, Good for you. I, I can't—but and, and, but just while I'm at it, you realize that that's where their bread is buttered. They make money off those firearms dealers. There's a lot of money Absolutely. to be made in the firearms industry now, isn't there? Right. With 393 million guns out there, a lot of, a lot of money has been made and, and will continue to be to be made. Um, so, look, uh, it, this is not uh, this is not a fight that is a short term one. It's a, uh, we're we're in it every day, every year. Um, Colorado ceasefire has been around for 20 years. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I think, uh, as I mentioned several times here today, uh, that we've reached a tipping point. Uh, we don't want to overreach, but we want to keep pushing to try and enact reasonable gun safety legislation to save lives. That's what we're going to do. We, anybody listening, we we welcome your uh, your help. Whether you want to contribute money, time, effort, what whatever, uh, if you're interested in this issue, we would we would welcome your help. Mark, thanks for all you do. Thanks for your contributions to the betterment of society. And it was really great speaking with you. Craig, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. 
add to Jokic for MVP or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP. Get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP. And help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways and not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, a lot. But let's say he's got $2 billion, and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael. And I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. Get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Another extraordinary week in talk radio. Why do I listen? Why do I talk about it? Well, sometimes you just want to keep track of people you know at places you used to work. And in the case of 710KNUS, they are a major part of the right wing ecosystem that affects our politics, our children. The right complains that the left has a media stranglehold. I don't think so. Fox News, talk radio, they organize their arguments, just like their attack on Dr. Fauci. But mainly it comes down to the big lie. That's the big problem right now because it's leading to a threat of ongoing violence. There are things that just will not be discussed on talk radio or Fox 
What about QAnon, the large percentage of Republicans who are going for that? Why is that not discussed? Because it makes them look bad. It should make them look bad. A bunch of conspiracy nuts spewing that crap and never really challenged. Have you heard Lauren Boebert asked on Denver Trump Radio anything about QAnon? No. I wrote about Lauren Boebert coming in second to Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was my Colorado Sun column, and I tried to push back there. I pushed back on talk radio until I got replaced for criticizing Donald Trump, replaced by Randy Corcoran. Randy Corcoran first came over to KNUS at my invitation to cover for me when my son Sam had his bar mitzvah. That had to be five years ago because he's now 18, graduating high school. Anyway, Randy Corcoran... He's got ambitions. He's a Republican committee man. He's been a Republican delegate for Donald Trump after first leading the charge for Ted Cruz. But he is all Trump now, and he's one of the biggest perpetrators of the big lie. He represents people who are getting sued by Dominion and Eric Coomer. Actually, it's the Eric Coomer lawsuit that he's involved in. Yet it was Corcoran who week after week talks about the election being stolen and disparages Eric Coomer and also puts on all the people who support the big lie. And that's what made talk radio interesting for a bit because Corcoran brought Joe Altman, Joel Altman, who's at the heart of the Coomer lawsuit. Altman, who had a conservative daily podcast, appeared about 10 days after the election with Corcoran, after appearing a week after the election at his Rappo County Tea Party. And then he was on Boyles a couple times, and Boyles let him spew the nonsense about the big lie about Eric Coomer and Dominion, which has fed Donald Trump's big lie, which fed the January 6th insurrection. It's interesting to go back to Corcoran's show on January 2. He expressed a willingness, a desire to go for the January 6th events as summoned by Donald Trump, but his mom was sick, and yet he talked about it. He explained how January 6th was going to be a big date for his organization, the people who support Stop This Deal and perpetrate the big lie. Listen to what he said on January 2, 2021. I am Randy Corcoran, and still, you are pumped-up purveyor of principled, passionate patriotism. And I got to tell you, I've never been more fired up than I am right now. And it doesn't matter to me. It matters. But it doesn't matter to my attitude. It doesn't matter to my determination. doesn't matter to my intentions on moving forward into 2021 who is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. 2021 as president of the United States. Either way, there are going to be intense and powerful forces at work and intense and powerful motivations to get after it, to continue to organize, to take advantage of this movement that was spawned by President Donald J. Trump that uh, so far has been 
working within the Republican Party, hear an awful lot of conversation about it moving out of the Republican Party. Of course, naturally that happens after I get elected to the swamp as a Republican National Committee man. But either way, whatever direction things go, the fight for liberty will continue. I mean, can you imagine if Donald Trump is in fact inaugurated on January 20th? And we all know that the odds of that have been and remain slim. January 6th is the next target date. January 6th is the target date. And boy, was it. He talked further about all the people he knew who, was go- who were going to D.C. for Insurrection Day. Pins and needles between now and Wednesday. Don't forget, if you're headed to D.C., there may not be hotel rooms. It may be hard to get food and other things. You can go to stopthesteal.us, stopthesteal.us. And there's another website. I forgot to look for it, but I'll bring it to you uh, in just a couple of minutes where you can actually coordinate with other folks. People are driving out there. They're caravanning out there. They're bussing out there with rented buses and RVs and um Ollie Armstrong is suggesting that you bring sleeping stuff because unless you go way outside of D.C., the mayor is shutting down the hotels and putting limits on anybody's ability to do business just coincidentally through this next week. Hmm. I wonder what that could be related to. And then he had special guests, people he met through social media, put them on to tout the benefits of going to Washington for the big day, January 6th. When I went to the top of the hour, I said, you know, uh, what I'm dealing with with my mom. And, and I thought about that as soon as we went to break. And I thought, you know, it's what my mom is dealing with. And I'm trying to have her back and, you know, just be a support to her as we move forward. And and uh, our next guest, Tracy, put something up on Facebook that just grabbed my heart. And she agreed to come on and talk about it. Tracy, good morning. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for calling in, and um, I'll be interested to talk to you about the after the show about uh, what's been going on for the past few minutes. But uh, um, first, real qu- question: I know you went to Washington D.C. for the big rally a few weeks ago. Are you going back on Wednesday? I am. I go on okay. Tuesday, and I'll return on Thursday. Good for you. Are you going with Sherry? I'm not positive Sherry's going, but we do have a large contingent from Colorado. God, I am so glad to hear that. And for folks who can't go, noon to four is the Stop the Steel rally at the Capitol on Wednesday here in Colorado. So, um, yeah, keep me posted. I know you'll text me and let me know how things are going on. Really look forward to that. But uh, So you know who Randy Corcoran is. He's a powerful person in Colorado's Republican Party. And he just became the powerful person at 710 KNUS because while I was there for over five and a half years, the guy who really runs it is Peter Boyles. Brian Taylor may get the check for being general manager, but oh my God, the way Peter Boyles talks about Brian Taylor, the things he's said, the way he's disparaged his physique and his mentality and his inability to understand radio the way he does— Boyles brags about stocking every show. Nobody gets on air without Boyles' permission, and they get yanked if Boyles doesn't like it, or that used to be the way it went. But Peter Boyles, as Randy Corcoran makes clear, is getting older. Here's what happened. I heard it when Boyles promoted that he was going on 
Stephen Tubbs show. You will recall from last week, Stephen Tubbs, stricken with COVID, off the air now. He he chose not to get a vaccination, which pleased Randy Corcoran, who definitely is against vaccinations of any kind. It's part of that whole anti-government thing. So you got those two anti-vaxxers and Corcoran, the leader of the anti-maskers. But as I told you, Corcoran's the big leader of the big lie. And when Peter Boyles perceived that Salem was ripe for getting sued and that he and Corcoran putting Oltman on made them in the line of fire, well, Boyles said, boys, I don't believe the big lie. And he took on Corcoran and he took on his audience, because it's a large percentage of Republicans who believe this bullcrap and a much larger percentage of the kind of Republicans who listen to Peter Boyles, and they were fighting him tooth and nail. And finally, Peter Boyles realized, my job is at jeopardy. My audience hates me. We can't keep going like this. So he made a plan, a stupid plan, a weak plan to capitulate. And to announce it, and to announce it to the leader of the big lie, Randy Corcoran. So he wanted to do it on his own show, Boyles, but Corcoran's savvy. He said, no, you come to me, 5 o'clock, and I tuned in this week. I couldn't believe it, the capitulation of Peter Boyles to this guy who talks at the outset about how he predicted it. He was going to be the boss not Boyles anymore. And he tells his story about the Western Conservative Summit. I went there so many times. This week, it's sad. Frank Gaffney, that's interesting. He's being marketed as the top headline individual when he's an okay guest on radio. He has his own podcast. I liked him because he was always nice to me, and we simultaneously opposed the Iran nuke deal. In fact, One year at the Western Conservative Summit, I got the main stage and told people to join me for a rally against the Iran nuke deal the next day at the Capitol. And who was there? Randy Corcoran. He was with me on that. And uh, Dan Kaplis came and Steve Kelly. Of course, Boyles wouldn't come. He doesn't like Israel. He just soon Iran do whatever. But Gaffney walked over, Frank Gaffney, the headliner this year. He walked over, he said, Craig, I heard about this. I said, come on up, Frank. And he said a few words. Anyway, I bring up the Western Conservative Summit because it's the backdrop of this story. Because at KNUS, we were situated at the Hyatt Regency. And I understand this setup with uh, then KLC, where Corcoran worked in a back room. Here, let Corcoran tell this story about how he told Brian Taylor how he was going to be replacing Peter Boyles, Randy Corcoran, that is. When I, in my first year doing talk radio at the other station, I was about six months in, and the Western Conservative Summit was going on. Of course, 710 is always a huge sponsor of the summit. And so you guys had your big tent, and you're doing your morning show out in the middle main foyer of the hotel there, foyer of the hotel, and... Everything's going on. I'm tucked away in this back, dark room. No people walking by. Have my little table. And I'm just doing my quiet little show, trying to, you know, figure out how to try and make a show work. And uh, and 
this guy comes walking over, this looming figure, and he stands at kind of a distance, and he's got glasses and a lot of face hair, good-looking, you know, solid-looking dude. And I get to a break, and he tells me that he's Brian Taylor and the general manager of 710 KNUS. And I made some smart-ass crack to him. It wasn't disrespectful, but just joking around, I said, yep, you know, uh, boils can't last forever. I think you were 72 then. <laughs> and brother, that was seven years ago, and you're still going strong as hell. And uh, and Brian chuckled that day, and he and I have been friends ever since I got here. And, and the real point of the story is I owe that to you. So this is the introduction, and Boyles is next on the radio. And afternoon, Peter wanders a lot, but it is revealing Corporate calling Pete Boyles the godfather. Well, he was until he capitulated to you, Corporate. Here's how the capitulation starts with Peter saying, I love radio. And he realizes he can't keep his gig if he's going to keep fighting the big lie. But the really sad thing is that Boyles dresses it up like he's a friend of the cops. He said he had this revelation the day before. He did a motorcycle ride up to Lookout Mountain. And there at Camp George West, with all his motorcycle riding cop buddies, he realized there were bigger issues and that he should just give in on the big lie. The amazing thing about Peter Boyles and his credibility is this bullcrap that he's a big supporter of the police. Because I was there when the police sued him. The police did not like Peter Boyles when he defamed them consistently back in the day. He got sued in the memorable case of Brian Gordon versus Peter Boyles, Brian Gordon and Betty Gordon. And Brian Gordon's mother got mixed up in this, our media Gordon, division chief our media Gordon, who is one of the finest cops I worked with during my 16 years in law enforcement. She was a proud African-American woman, and Brian Gordon, proud African-American officer. Peter Boyles comes on the air and accuses Brian Gordon of stabbing Ron Thomas, who's, who's not just on the force still. He's a division chief. Listen to the way the Colorado Supreme Court described the incident. It really is something in revealing about Peter Boyles, who now claims to be friends of the Denver police. Yeah, certain Denver police are probably his friends. But I know the black police officers sued his ass. Here's how the Colorado Supreme Court decided it. In a case that eventually the radio station had to pay a bundle for the lives of Peter Boyles. This was from a 2000 case. Gordon B. Boyles in the Colorado Supreme Court let me give you this citation, being the good lawyer that I am. 9 Pacific's 3rd, 1106. An opinion by Justice Bender, who described the facts as follows. During the late night and early morning hours of January 31 and February 1, 1997, several people engaged in multiple altercations at Pierre's Supper Club in Denver. At least six off-duty Denver police officers were present at the club over the course of the night. During one of the fights, someone stabbed Denver police officer Ron Thomas, who was then taken to Denver Health Medical Center 
for treatment of a laceration on his stomach. In mid-April 1997, Boyles broadcast several reports on his radio talk show about the incident at the nightclub and the stabbing, claiming that Officer Brian Gordon stabbed Thomas in a fight over a woman. Boyles stated that the Denver Police Department covered up the incident because Gordon is the son of a high-ranking police official. Boyles also asserted that Gordon had been charged with domestic violence in the past. During his broadcast, Boyles claimed that confidential sources provided him with this information and that his own investigation into the matter confirmed the reports about Gordon. Boyle stated that at least some of his information came from people associated with gangs, that their sources were, quote, no angels, close quote, and that they were, quote, borderline gang members who are struggling with some drug problems, close quote. Anyway, it goes on from there. And it does not work out for Peter Boyles, who lied, prevaricated, did everything to avoid a lawsuit. And he's been worried about a lawsuit ever since because he does tell untruths. He makes up conspiracy theories. And the guy has survived thus far, but he just gave it up to Randy Corcoran, who is a trial lawyer and realized that Boyles was coming to him hat in hand. And how would Corcoran handle it? Well... As the new godfather, he took it all in, but he kept peppering Boyles with questions to see if the capitulation was complete. Let's get back to Boyles and why he says he made the decision to capitulate. So here's me and you and me and a bunch of other people, and they were bouncing rocks off each other's heads. And I'm watching what's happening with the Democrats and the progressives and what's happening to cops. And, what, and I thought... And I'm standing in front of the statue of this um, this memorial. You can go to the website and see the guy's picture. I've never I've never been there before. I didn't even know it was a, that it existed, but it won't be the last time we go. And I and this little little lightning bolt says, "What are you doing?" Um, you know, had the whole thing with Christy and Priscilla and these other young women are running for office, and I know your heart, and you know, and all the people that you and I know, and. I said, I'm going into the radio station tomorrow morning, and we have much bigger problems and a bigger fight ahead of us than the outcome of the 2020 election. And that's when I texted you. I went to sent you a lengthy text this morning. You said, I can't do it, but you, can you make it at five? And I said, I was gonna, I was gonna ride over. <laughs> and it looks like rain, and I, you know. And so Corcoran takes the surrender, but he still keeps humiliating the guy who surrendered, Peter Boyles. And he says, what exactly does that mean? You're capitulating, but what's going to happen when the subject comes up? He won't let it go. And Peter Boyles is at a loss. Now, Corcoran is right. He's going to keep talking about it. He's going to take that fraudulent audit, the fraud it, in Arizona, and he's going to talk about it. And people on KNUS are going to want to hear about it. And Boyles won't talk about it. How's that going to work out? And people should know, last time that we were in studio together, well, I did stop in to drop off that equipment and and, uh, get a quick hug from Katie Hopkins. But um, 
But the last time we were together really did get tense. I mean, you were in the chair I'm in right now, leaning forward, and and uh, yeah. we we it it escalated quickly, and the, and the show ended okay. But yeah. but and when we walked through the gun show together, and uh, you know we've had some meals, it, it's always calm, but it's always been kind of floating under the surface here. Yeah. And just real quick, uh, listener wrote in, and we've now confirmed that there's a tornado. Uh, let's see, north of Frederick, Colorado. So listeners up there, keep me. I'm glad you're not riding. Um, So, and, you know, we all say, well, you know, our friendship is solid. and But we've seen families torn apart over these election issues. People who can't go to dinners and and, and don't or aren't talking to a, a parent or a child or a sibling or whatever. And uh, and and it's going to get worse before it gets better as far as the escalating tensions in the country. So what do you what do you think we should do? I mean, should we should we talk about what what the disputes are or or how to move past them? I, I don't know. You know, you didn't I, you and I didn't script this in any way. So what what did you have in mind? Um, you know, I'm I'm not even sure. I mean, it's so new to me because I have. I never back away from anything, and I've never – it's always been to my detriment, by the way. But Well, if you were watching the John Wayne movie, you probably didn't hear Joel Gilbert, who was on with us in the last hour for a chunk. And, um, and it, you know, he was talking a little bit about election and some of the investigations that are going on, and so it naturally led to talking about his – appearances with you and um, mm-hmm. how when election fraud came up that, you know, the kind of the tension came up and got steered away from that. And he made the comment that, uh, you know, Peter needs to stop being intimidated or whatever, or, you know, we need people who won't be intimidated. And I told him, I, I said, listen, this is a guy who's looked at this for himself and come to a different conclusion and thinks it's not only damaging to the party and the country, but to t- the, the future of talk radio that's why he's standing up. He's not scared of it. No. Um, and, and now we're trying to find a solution rather than we're not going to agree, obviously, and, and things are going to have to play out. Uh, but what's the solution? I, for me, if it seems like if, if, when you're doing your show, if you do bring it up and people want to come in, call in and, and talk about their, their view or take you on factually or whatever, that that's kind of an invitation to do that when you bring it up. <laughs> But that, but then you've gotten resistant to it, and I—is it something you just don't want to talk about anymore? Or because how do we avoid it? These, these, uh, all these big investigations are going on around the country. So Boyles does his hubba bubba. He hasn't thought this through. He's surrendering, and he doesn't even understand the terms of his surrender. And he's there with hat in hand to Corcoran, who's not going to just let it go. Boyle says it's a stupid fight. It is, because the people who propound these conspiracy theories, they've got nothing except bullshit conjecture and Donald Trump fanning the flames. We're in an environment now where we're approaching 50% in the country that have questions about the 2020 election, 70% in the Republican Party. Yeah, well, and so what do you do with that? It's a stupid fight. History will be our judge. Uh, as it was with WMDs, as it was with, you know, finally a grand juror comes out because of Charlie Brennan's great work and said, we wanted to indict uh, John and Patsy for that little girl. We wanted to indict them and for whatever reasons for another day. That never happened. Um, I don't know. I know that we have we have a year and a half till the next election. And I don't want to get Priscilla or 
anybody involved in anything that can be detrimental. People can believe what they want to believe. And I think the wisest thing that I could do, and I'm not telling you to do it or anybody else to do it, the wisest thing I could do is put whatever weight we have behind changing the course of um, Colorado and Denver, of who's in charge. And, you know, battling over what I think is absolute insanity ends up, you know, if you if you read literature, you know that Gulliver's Travels that everybody, it was Jonathan Swift wrote it. It was a parody on religion, on which end of the egg do you open? And that was what that fight that Gulliver uh, gets involved in is, and it was a religious battle between those Protestants and Catholics in England. On which end of the egg do you open? Which, who is right? The Protestants, are they right? Or the Catholics are right? And they were ripping each other's throats out to what end? I've never understood that, but they do it. They do it, and they do it, continue to do it. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, if we, I mean, I've run my race. I'm an old guy, you know. Um, Randy, it's, it's not going to solve anything. You know, if somebody well, wants to believe you open the egg on that end, that's fine. I'm, I'm done, done having the argument. There it is. Boyle says he's done having the argument. Next, they go back to Stephen Tubbs. This is really fascinating how this all comes down. Tubbs, who has to worry about losing his job, he used to come on and say, I'm pro-choice. He can't say that anymore. There are certain rules over there. Anyway, Tubbs is trying to remain relevant while confined with COVID because he didn't get vaccinated. And here are Corcoran and Boyle's disclosing his medical condition and kind of making fun of him while he's hurting. And we just got an update from that uh, that relentless tornado chaser, Stefan Tubbs. He just texted in and said that the tornado <laughs> is near Platteville now. It's on the ground and slow moving, so he must be watching it at home. Uh, or, really... he's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or he's there. Yeah. Have you talked to him lately? I don't think he's <laughs> there. This morning just... we're texting him. Yeah, yeah he still hey, sounds a little gravelly. But... He's, he's, the boy's got a struggle ahead. He uh, really yeah. does. All right, brother, we're going to take our pause. We will pick it up on the other side. The uh, The peace table is underway. Peace pipe is getting refilled. We'll pass it around and we'll continue the conversation. What do we do with uh, really one of the primary issues of the day for Republicans as we move forward into 2022 and especially 2024? Stay with us here on the Stephen Tubb Show. We'll check in with Roger uh, Richard Robertson in 710 KNUS News. It starts to dawn on Boyles that he has waved the white flag, that he has capitulated. So, of course, what can he do? Lie about that. Claim that he's no quitter, he's not a sissy, but he just demonstrated that. And once again, he comes up with his justification. He wants to help the hard right win all they can in Colorado. Good luck with that. At least, though, Boyles is stating his agenda, which is, as clearly stated, a political agenda on media. I've never heard anything quite like that. You don't even hear that out of Sean Hannity. Maybe Hannity. But really, here was the past leader of KNUS saying, our mission here is to help the hard right. As far as protecting what you love, talk radio, and still allowing people to speak and explore, you know, what do we do? I don't have an answer for that. I just have an answer for, or at least a thought for myself. And 
this is by no means a white flag or hands up, I quit. It's just the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is to whatever strength or weight or might our radio station has to use it to do what I consider the right thing. The other issue will be to history. Um, there will be an answer to all of these issues, and it will come. And much like Gulliver's Travels, much like religious fights, it won't end. And frankly, it, it's a, to me, it's like, what's the purpose? At what end do we do this? And again, Corcoran won't accept the concession without digging it in a little deeper. But here's the beauty of talk radio callers. You can't control them. Gosh, Peter Boyles has told me so many times how much he hates callers because they derail his show. Mainly he has his guests. The guy doesn't know how to have a conversation. I could parry with callers. All he does is try to bounce his shit off them and get a bunch of ditto heads. This was no ditto head who called. Corporate even gave Boyles the choice. Do you really want callers? And then they put on Roger from Park County, and he humiliates Peter Boyles and demonstrates how this capitulation is going to work out. Do you want to do calls? Sure. It's, it's on you. All right. Roger in Park County, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Um, listen, I'm running for sheriff up here in Park County. I'd be happy to be on your show, Peter, to debate anything I'm about to say. But I've been listening to you for 10 years. You're a traitor on every level. Yeah, no, we're not, we're not going to have that, Roger. Sorry, not, not today. Leave, nah. leave, him, leave him. Let him go. Let him go. Nah. Okay. You're, no, you're the, the godfather. Point. Go ahead. No, there ain't, there ain't a government up. lie that you don't love. Oklahoma An City, example. 9-11. Let me let me check you, Roger. Do you believe there were WMDs in Iraq? Well, do you? There's not any evidence except for the ones we sold Saddam or no, gave them. Stop. And your answer, right. your answer, you're, you're, you're trying to cop this. The answer Th- is, no, is, they weren't there. This isn't the fight I want to have. Nah, no, I'm going to drop them. No, it's let me have fight. it. No, come on. I'm, listen to me. I don't want to do this because this is what I'm trying to avoid. They call me whatever you want to call me. show, Peter. Okay, man. Well, good luck you winning the welcome. Matt, Matt's got my no, number. No, listen. Listen to me. Listen to me one more time. This is why I'm on Randy's show. I said what I said. Look, pal, you can take what you believe, and you can have a great time with it. And I'm not putting you on my show because you're running for office. I don't care. Look, this stuff isn't any fun, Peter. It's a real pain to watch America go down the drain with election fraud and all oh, the fine. other stuff. Fine. 9-11. Fine. Dick Cheney being involved. Well, what, what, it's tell real, tell me what it's happened. very painful well, to watch what, these things. Back no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump, guys. I'm going to jump. No, Randy, Roger, I'm going to let you go. Exactly the reason. And j- Listen, let's Randy. get one more call in here, though, Peter. So there you have it. A historic week in Denver Talk Radio, Denver Trump Radio. When I say Denver Trump Radio, I'm talking about those people on any station who are just committed to Trump and the Trump crowd. And they'll say anything, do anything to cater to that crowd. And this is a very good demonstration of that. Peter Boyle says he loves history. Well, dude, you made history this week. You just gave it up to Randy Corcoran. The changing of the guard. What a sad ending for Peter Boyle. 
I graduated CU Law School in 1981. And now here it is, 2021. I'm coming up on 40 years. It's flown by. I keep learning. But I know things. And I'm available to be your lawyer. I have a great law firm behind me, Springer and Steinberg. We do it all. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time, I publish a new podcast. Get it straight right then to your smartphone. Please subscribe. Thank you. Oh my gosh, we have the classic Troubadour song this week. It's called Earth. Troubadour, way to go. You've given us all the elements of a classic Dave Gunders song. How are you, Craig? I'm wonderful now that I've heard this song, Earth. You've been holding out on me. Well, I always like there to be a surprise for you. You can find it on SoundCloud at the best of Dave Gunders or go to my podcast website. First of all, you start off with an instrument that I did not even know was in your repertoire. You had to tell me what the starting instrument was. Yes, there's a little cymbal hit to start. And is that for symbolism? If that's what you like, sure, we'll, we'll go with that. The moment of creation for Earth. Okay. I think you take on the wise, sage, narrator voice in this song. I like that. Okay, well, I may have stumbled upon that. And then you know why it has all the elements of a Dave Gunder song, the moon, the stars, the wind, the trees, the sun. It's the Earth, dude. It's the Earth. It's a song, yeah, it's a song about paying more attention to to the beauty around us and taking and being stewards, stewards of the earth. The other classic element of a Dave Gunders song, your contempt for inactivity when you say the word housebound here. And this was pre-pandemic, right? Right. Yeah. I was talking about the sky at night. You know, people don't go out enough and look at the and look at the stars. Speaking of that, have you heard Jeff Bezos is going to travel to space with his little brother in the first manned flight of his company? You're the first one to tell me. Would you go? I would have to think hard about that and maybe consult with my wife. She might let me go, but uh, my daughters, I don't think uh, I don't think they would like the idea of trying to get another father. What about Lisa? Think she'd be down with another husband? Would you want her to remarry? Well, in the event of my of my untimely demise, sure I would, of course. I asked the very thing of my wife, Trish. I said, honey, if I were to pass away, I would want you to remarry. And she said, come on, Craig, don't talk like that. That's ridiculous. I said, no, actually, if he's my size and he fits in my clothes, he can wear them. I have no use for them. She said, seriously, Craig, I don't want you talking about stuff like that. And then I said, I am dead serious about this. In fact, if he plays golf, he can use my golf clubs. You know what she said? He's left-handed. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. All right. 
Thanks for putting up with it. Do you know what's really a true story that's sad and apropos of your song? Tell me. Lake Mead is as dry as it's ever been. Wow. Yeah. And we got a little replenishment. You always like to talk about the lakes on our travels, and I do too. Yeah. But the western slope is hurting. Did yes. you hear about that? Well, I know that uh, thankfully the Denver, <clears throat> the Front Range, I think, <clears throat> pardon me, the um, the reservoirs are filling this year, which is great, but not so, not so for the western slope. Well, you're cup is full. I know you're busy as hell with your remodeling business. Give a shout out for it again. Lookout Renovation. Thanks, and, Craig. And then you're playing gigs with your band. Tell us your band name and where band, you're playing. We are we are the Vipers and we'll be at uh, Lincoln's Roadhouse this Saturday night and I think The Zone the following Saturday. It's an outside venue in Golden. That is cool. The other thing I like about your song is you start off sort of sweet creation story but then you get angry and you talk about your frustration and we're destroying species etc i like when you go off and get a little angry you expressed yourself in right the song. right the bridge gets yeah the bridge is a is a um a venting and and it's it's frustrated yeah but then you calm down and then i notice how this song sort of trails off because you don't have a wise answer. You just got to think about paying attention, right? That's what I'm trying to impart here. I needed to pay more attention to climate change. For a long time, I said I'm not a scientist. But now I think that it's another area where I need some introspection. Part of it is walking around this earth with Dave Gunders. Let's listen to his beautiful song titled Earth. of the earth and what it's about got to put back when you take some out but nobody's thinking the moon climbs high planets go around they travel the sky while we're sitting here housebound nobody's watching Nobody's watching I'm feeling the sun early in May Warms my skin on this fine day But nobody's feeling Where he's coming from 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. And that's our show. Thank you, Troubadour, for bringing us back to Earth. What a wonderful song. Mark Harris, thank you for your ceaseless efforts at Colorado Ceasefire, for Common Sense Gun Control, and then to my buddies, Ken Toltz, Vic Mitchell. Really enjoyed the talk. I hope you did, too. Until next Saturday, have a good week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.